The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Thank you so much for joining us on yet another Afternoons with Mike here on the Shepherd Radio Network. Back on the line with me, he's traveling, he's multitasking, the guy can do it all. Dave Zanotti from the Public Square, welcome to my program. Thank you, Mike. And I do apologize that we've been unable to get together sooner than this. Um, I do so love talking with you first off and then talking to the audience of the Shepherd Network. Uh, these, your listeners mean a lot to us hmm. and they correspond with us and they encourage us. And I appreciate them so much. I appreciate all of Mark communications. And you know that I never want to say that stop saying thank you enough to everyone that supports your program and your stations and the work of, of the Shepherd Network and all of the MARC pro programs because they're very important to our country. So um, I, it's unfortunate that in a way that um, my job requires that I spend time in each of our offices. And so since the airlines have kind of made a mess of things uh, in so many different ways, we have to do a lot more driving, which means we don't get around as often as we would. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people would never know which office we were in next because we were back and forth so much because we could fly. But now we get more extended periods of time where we're away in one place. And so I've been away from Orlando for a bit and I miss you all very much. So I'm glad to be back with you today. Well, we miss you too, man. And it's, it really is uh, great when you're, when you are local in any of the cities where you are, I know you've got contacts in all of them. And I think we would all feel that way. It's a, it's always a pleasure to have your viewpoint. Uh, I say this regularly when I talk with you, because it's true. You offer a viewpoint and an analysis that I'm just confident is in short supply around our country right now. We have a lot of people. This, you know, I'm, I'm from, Dave, one of what uh, is historically, especially in country music now, called a flyover state. I'm, I'm from Indiana, the cornfields of Indiana. That's where I hailed from, and we moved down to Orlando in 1985, and the people that I know of from my area in Indiana and just about everywhere in between, that I hear the same thing. Everyone's wondering what in the world is going on. What has happened to our country? What is what is the mindset of the leaders that are there, and how in the world is this ever going to shake out? And I know you hear the same thing. Well. You know, Mike, it's a fortunate situation for um, those of us working at the American Policy Roundtables that um, this is not our first rodeo. And having started in this mission work 42 years ago and having as one of our first and primary responsibilities to understand, uh, to learn and understand American history, law and government, we can see things with a little bit more perspective and and see some of the cause and the effect. In addition to that, because what we do in the field of public policy is to do public policy, not just talk about it. Mm -hmm. We're not commentators. Um, we're not analysts. We actually do the work of public policy. Therefore, we have a much more um, fluent understanding of why people are doing what they're doing and what you can expect to happen next, because we've seen it before on the ground. It's sort of like the Hebrew definition of the word for wisdom uh, in the Old Testament. It almost, you could almost take the word of, uh, for wisdom as someone who has dirt under their fingernails, mm -hmm. someone who has done this stuff enough before that they know how it ought to be pretty much being done. So we really treasure our experience, both our successes and our failures. We've learned far more from our failures than our success. We treasure the scars. And, and, and we are happy to share with folks. And the difference between what we do and what a lot of other uh, people have tried to do is that we don't ask people to pray for us and support the work of the American Policy Roundtable or the public square because we're a representative army. We don't go fight for people. That's not what we do. We work to empower American citizens to enter into the marketplace in a spirit of public service 
as unto their Lord and to do good. And this is what we've been doing for 42 years. So what we do is not a vicarious work. We're in it and we're constantly talking with people who are in it and getting into it and helping people get into the field of service. So uh, yeah, our perspective is gonna be different because we're in a different spot in the field. We're not special, we're just in a different spot. Well, you know, and that different spot is said often by you and others on the program. It's not a one side of the aisle, politically speaking, or the other. It is really just calling out to Americans in general. And uh, that I like about it as well. I, I get the sense that you guys maybe have this edge of being uh, much more objective than many commentators. Like you said, you're not a commentator. You're not just an analyst, an, an, an analyst but you do give an, an analysis that is helpful. And so with that, I, you know, you're kind of, you're not calling out for one party or the other. You're really calling out both of them for the errors that they've both made, which uh, there's no shortage on either side of the aisle, right? Well, what we're calling for, Mike, is for one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice yes. for all. Yeah. And that's the original founding vision of America, was one nation. Not a bunch of people in their little groups, their little classes, their political parties, or their tribal connections. It was about becoming one people and sharing a common vision of liberty and justice. And so this is the American experiment. So we're way past partisanship on this mm-hmm. routine. We're, if we could do anything, we would. if we could erase anything in our culture, we'd eliminate both political parties in a heartbeat because – They basically are simply economic vehicles for people to have a full-time job in politics. But by and large, they do nothing to solve problems. I think that's evident. And you can, all you have to do to, to determine that is go back to a time when uh, the other party was in rule and see if things got done then. And the truth of it is they really didn't. And that is, that is something that is, uh, oh, it should be on us all that we are starting to demand. And I've had this thought of, of, on this point. I've had this thought, and I wonder if you would agree with it. Do you sense a time that people are going to be, let's say, protesting, rising up uh, across the country in mass protest against where our government is taking us right now? Do you see that coming? Well, I think what would be a better thing to pray with that would come would not be protest because there is a biblical purpose for protest and there's a biblical formula for dealing with evil in civil culture and that formula is found in three words one we expose evil the second is we resist it and that's where the protest comes in sometimes the protest is exposing sometimes it's resisting but ultimately we have to overcome it by doing good What I would pray for is a time when Americans would realize the reason the political parties are so corrupt and making all this money and taking advantage of all these situations and accomplishing nothing except their own self-service is largely because we, the people, abandon our personal responsibility for our civil society and our form of government. There was a time when serving on city council was a noble task for a Christian, serving on the school board. Um, uh, volunteering for the public library, uh, running for state rep, state senate, serving in the United States Congress, or supporting people who were. There was a time when we viewed public service as a responsibility of love of neighbor, and we have forfeited that, surrendered it to the political parties, gone to the television instead, built our own lifestyles, Mm -hmm. and stopped serving. So the people that are going to do this and get paid for it for a living basically just got organized. The parties are nothing more than the political unions. And they took over, they get paid, and they do everything, and then we're sitting on the outside looking in. Well, we need to change that. And if we go back into the field of public service, we'll find very quickly, we don't have to protest. We can we can actually produce change by doing good things, mm-hmm. like by, by serving. And, and it, it's going to be a lot easier than people think. I think it uh, would be too. You know, when you, especially when you hear programs like you've been running recently on the, your program, the Public Square, with these interviews with Dr. Allen, this brilliant man 
who has written as you have written on George Washington. And you had a quote, Dave, and I'd like, you don't have to give it exactly here, but you had a quote from Washington where he was talking about the privilege that he had of serving our great country and how that he did not want to draw any personal uh, benefit from it from a standpoint of pay. He, he did not seek after any remuneration at all from the country uh, apart from his expenses in, in serving the, the country. Uh, that, that's got to be lost on most of our leaders today, wouldn't you think? Well, uh, let's go back and look for a moment at the life of George Washington. This is a young man who came from a blended family uh, excuse me, who, who actually was a part of a blended family, and that when he got married, he married Martha Custis, and they had children from her first marriage. And so they were, in essence, a, the, the, the father of America was also the father, father of a blended family. Now, George Washington, as a child, lost his dad and his older brother, who was his mentor. By the time George Washington was 14, he was on his own. And, and trying to make a living and survive in the world of surveying at the age of 14. So this is a guy who did not come out of some elite European family and pedigree that had the world at his fingertips and had an endless amount of money and resources. This is a guy who was pretty much a nobody who based upon service, first in the British military, then in the United States, then in the, in the continental uh, Congress and mm-hmm. in the, in the Virginian House, Virginia House of Burgesses lived a life of public service. He was a farmer trying to maintain the lands that he had inherited from his family and then to serve. And, and as he continued to serve, he began to get more and more notice. He had some of the deepest military experience uh, prior to the Revolutionary War. And then he went, went on to take the commission as a first commander in chief in the field as the commanding general of the Union Army, now, of the, excuse me, of the, uh, of the Colonial Army. And when he did that, this goes to the quote that you mentioned, he made it crystal clear to Congress that it was an honor to serve. He was convinced that he was not good enough for the task. And what he said was, because I know I'm not good enough for this task, I'll do the best that I can and expect nothing in compensation other than my expenses mm-hmm. to be paid, and I'll ask for nothing more. And that was, in fact, what did happen. Even then, when Washington came back to be elected the first president of the United States, he took no salary. You know, that has just got to make every politician in our country take notice. If they were to hear it, I'm not sure they would believe it. And they certainly, I think, would not like it. But that's that's just my very limited from the cheap seat view on this issue. the funny story is, Mike, that Congress came back to the president and said, you know, Mr. President, with the greatest respect possible, we're going to ask you to take something in compensation, because if you don't, since it's Congress that's appropriated to the executive branch a salaried position, if you don't, you're going to create a constitutional conflict between us and, and, and the executive branch. So please take something for the sake of the future mm-hmm. presidents. And of course, then Washington cooperated with the Congress. But I just think that's a great story. They had an argument because the president didn't want to get paid. Yeah, it has to be talked <laughs> into getting a salary. Yeah, for that, constitutional purposes. Who does that? I mean, that's not something you're going to find in, the, in today's world, I, I don't believe. And, and also, he did one other thing. He resisted the attempts by many to become king, correct? Well, and, and certainly so, especially in the very scary period of time where the paperwork was being done to finish the, the final peace resolutions after the British had surrendered and Washington's army was still in the field, not getting paid, but they couldn't disband because we didn't know if hostilities would, would once again resurface. And so um, there was an actual mutiny in Newburgh in which uh, his military leaders were, were deciding they were going to take over and make him king and so that they could get paid and that the country could stop all this nonsense. And of course, Washington uh, dissipated that rebellion without um, prosecuting his frustrated generals. It was a beautiful act of 
mercy and leadership, which was so common uh, in George Washington and in the way that he led. Well, I, I want you to know, Dave, how much I love listening to the programs. You've had them on uh, over the past couple of years, a couple of different times. Every time you do, I feel that it is a, a breath of fresh air because we're not in a day and age right now where our history is being handled with kid gloves right now. It, it's like revisionists are at the hand, at the wheel of this ship, and uh, they're the ones steering, and they're not steering in the, the direction of truth when it comes to American history. But I always feel that you guys uncover it, and this, uh, especially with this chat with Dr. Allen, that had to be a real fun thing for you. Well, and it's continued, Mike. We're very grateful for the, uh, the, the friendship that we have with Dr. Allen and that God has given him good health and that he uh, uh, not only takes our phone calls, but he's now a member of our board of trustees. Oh, wonderful. So we have the, yeah, we have the privilege of working with him on a regular basis. He just spent a couple of days at the American Mission Center in Valley City, Ohio with us, and we did some of the most interesting dialogue and debriefing uh, on a number of major issues facing the country today. And some of those conversations now have moved forward into a recorded session that we'll be rolling out on the Shepherd Network in the weeks to come. Uh, Dr. Allen has just completed a major scholarly work called The State of Black America, in which he has requested um, experts from around the country to respond to a large number of different uh, issues facing particularly black Americans today and what the problems are, what the solutions are. And he's edited this work together for the first volume. And we talked about that for two days and much of this is now gonna come out on the public square uh, in the audio version. And uh, then hopefully down the road in the video version as well. But it'll be on the Shepherd Network and I think people will be glued to their radios and their mobile devices. Because Dr. Allen has some incredible insights on where we're missing it in regards to helping people who need help and where some of our help has actually been dramatically counterproductive. So I won't say any more than that, except to say that it's coming. And we consider Dr. Allen uh, visiting in, in his time of his life with us uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a wonderful relationship as a gift from God. And we just want everyone to hear the conversations that we're having because they're being so helpful to us. Uh, they are helpful to everybody. He is so smooth and the way he talks and has this confidence that you just feel like you're hearing from a trusted grandfather. And that's the way he comes over. I mean, it's, it's just wonderful. Got just a minute left before we take a break. Give us an update on Wayne Shepherd and his work with Mission Eurasia. Well, Wayne, Sergey, and the folks at Mission Eurasia continue every day. As you know, the conflicts, are, are still very, very difficult in Ukraine. And we expect them to be that way for a number of years. I was just praying today for the restoration of, of Ukraine. We're in the place now where it's crystal clear that this war is not going to end until one of the sides gives up. And I don't see the Ukrainians giving up, which means that Mission Eurasia is going to be as vital as ever. One thing I want you to know, Mike, is that people listening to the public square on your network and many others across the country have responded in the most humble and sincere and generous way to Mission Eurasia. There have been, there's been a lot of money that's been sent to help them, and they're using it with great heroic um, efforts to feed and clothe and, and to help refugees and to rescue people who are trapped. It's been wonderful, and we've seen a beautiful response from people of faith for the people of Ukraine. So Wayne and, and Sergey couldn't be more thankful, and so are we. Uh, I love uh, Wayne so much. Thank you for introducing him to me. And uh, I've had him now on my own program. And it's so, he's such a delight. And uh, we love listening to him and all the rest, Rob and the gang, uh, from your show uh, here on The Shepherd. It's always wonderful. I'm talking today to Dave Zanotti from the Public Square. We'll be back with him in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike. On the line with me today, Dave Zanotti from the Public Square, the American Policy Roundtable. If you missed segment one, if you're just tuning in, Dave's traveling uh, off times when he's in one of the other offices of the uh, American Policy Roundtable. We'll be able to connect studio to studio, uh, but he's on the road today. That would be a little difficult 
uh, to have that studio set up going while uh, while he's in the automobile. So it, it's uh, it's all right. We'll we'll take the technology that we have at hand. And we'll go forward. Dave, there's so much going on right now in the news. And uh, a lot of it is right now all eyes are waiting. And, uh, you know, it's stretched out. I think those that said it would take till the end of June are probably going to be right on the nose. The Supreme Court has, uh, in the face of all sorts of pressure, really, unprecedented pressure. The Supreme Court uh, is waiting until the very end of this term before they give us a ruling on the Dobbs case, Dobbs versus Jackson, which could functionally carry with it an end to Roe v. Wade, uh, as it has been since 1973. So with that, I mean, there are other things. Well, let's stop for a moment. What are your thoughts on the mood of the country, the response of the Biden administration to uh, really not not giving what would appear to be the needed protection for the Supreme Court because of that leak that happened. Uh, these guys' lives, are it, their homes are being protested every day. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, history shows that when the United States Supreme Court is dealing with a question of personhood, it has a very poor track record. Uh, we know that the concept of personhood is defined by our Declaration of Independence. It, it makes it very clear that humans, all humans, are made in the image of God, the creator, the personal creator, and are endowed with certain unalienable rights. When the Supreme Court begins to deal with these questions, uh, they've got a very checkered past. Mm. Um, and, and so this is the first thing to know, because when we're dealing with the Dobbs case, what we're really dealing with again and the Roe case, we're dealing with the question of personhood, and the court basically attempting to tell us that um, that an unborn child simply is not a person and has no right of the protection of the inherent right to life. Now, we've de- dealt with this now uh, in, in a horrible decision for almost 50 years, mm-hmm. and it appears, if all things hold as we think they're going to, it appears that what we've got is the overturning of Roe coming. Now, the first question is when, and we it, it could go the whole way into July. Uh, we don't think it will go any farther than that. The court is not obligated under any structure to, to tell us when they're going to do it. The speculation is it would most likely be right before the 4th of July, simply because the fastest way for a news story to, to sort of disappear is to release it on the weekend and all that's faster than that is a holiday weekend. So um, we we anticipate it to be um, probably next week, although it get could be uh, it could be before that time. It could be right, I, but I think it'll be right before the Fourth of July. So that's that's the first thing. Secondly, of course, is the reality of what's in the decision. If the Alito decision, and you and I have spoken about this before, mm-hmm, yes. If the Alito decision is in fact the template for where the court's going then there needs to be a moment for all people of America, all people of America, to stop and consider that the United States Supreme Court is admitting out loud after 50 years that the court in 73 got it wrong, that they got it wrong in 73, they got it wrong in every decision that they made that upheld or expanded Roe from that point in time, and to listen to why the justices are convinced that the previous court got it wrong because it's a compelling argument that the court is making. And that argument is simply this, that rights do not come to us from the Constitution, nor do they come to us from the courts, that rights come from God. The reason that's so essential, Mike, is if our rights come from our Constitution, if they're not articulated or enumerated Mm -hmm. in the legal term, if they're not written down in that document, then they don't exist. That's never been the premise of the American system of law and justice. The premise has always been that we are created in the image of God. And listen to the words of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That among these, not the totality of these, Mm -hmm. not exclusively these, but that among these, 
So if, if someone's going to come and say that the Constitution is the source of our rights, well, that's simply not true. The Constitution may set up disciplines and boundaries about how your rights can be practiced and protected, but it doesn't grant those rights. But the court is going a step farther and saying it's dangerous when the court implants a right in the Constitution that is clearly never intended and never mentioned. That's what Francis Schaeffer called sociological law, or in essence, making the Constitution say whatever the opinion of the day is that you wish the Constitution said. Mm -hmm. And the court's admitting that's what they've been doing for over 50 years. That is an amazing admission of guilt. And we should take the time to say, thank God that in the name of justice, a majority on the court has finally acknowledged what I'm going to tell you this, Mike, I wish people here very carefully. The court is only saying what every pro-abortion lawyer I have ever debated on this subject is saying out loud. I have never had a debate with a pro-abortion lawyer who was honest. Many times I'd have to do it off the record because they wouldn't do it in public. I've never had a comment where we weren't in a situation where those lawyers told us behind closed doors that they knew Roe was lousy law, that it was decided on a lie, that the right of abortion does not exist in the Constitution in the 13th or 14th Amendment. It does not exist as a matter of privacy. It's not in the Fourth Amendment. It's not in the Ninth Amendment. It's not there. We know that. We know that. They know that, and they've known it all along, and they never say it out loud. The courts finally said it out loud. We, if this comes down in this fashion, we must stop and thank God that truth, even for one shining moment, mm -hmm. has prevailed in American Jerusalem. Do you see there being any uh, fallout from those um, from those who would be still a proponent legally for it and arguing for it? Is there going to be any uh, anything that they can do uh, once the Supreme Court says this, that's really one and done on that, right? Well, what's fascinating about the court is not only are they getting it right by admitting they're wrong, they're also getting it right by saying it's not their call. It belongs to the people, and mm -hmm. the way that the people will decide this is through legislation, and that means that every state legislature is going to have right now to hold this debate and conduct this debate. Therefore, the debate is on. For the next 50 years, the debate will be on in the states, which gives us that opportunity we talked about earlier for people to step up and serve, mm -hmm. to step up and to take initiative, to meet with their state representatives, to meet with their state senators, to meet with their governors and lieutenant governors and attorney generals, and, and, and to talk with people about why the pro-life argument is the most philosophically honest and the most healthy approach for our civil society, why it makes sense to be pro-life. And now we have an opportunity to win the public debate in the state legislative level, to pass laws that reflect that, and for all 50 states to do that. And that's what the courts should have done in the beginning and they finally admitted it. So we have a chance now to have a, a, a wonderful opportunity of repair. Now, I know that some states are dominated by pro-abortion politicians. And those pro-abortion politicians are going to do everything they can to make sure that those states give the widest berth possible for the continued practice of abortion. That's a battle we're going to have, and we're going to have it for a long time. I, I don't expect at all for all 50 states to suddenly decide to protect life, but I think a whole lot of states are going to protect life. A lot. The vast majority will. And that's a far cry better than where we were in Roe. Absolutely. In fact, I, I just read about Iowa. Uh, they're, they've cleared the way right now uh, and other states as well. Oklahoma, I think, is another state where it would appear that they're, it's not going to be done there in that state once this uh, Roe v. Wade is indeed overturned. So there are some states that are getting ready for that. At the same time, you're right, there are states like New York and California that are uh, just trying to get the... the I guess you could say this. They're trying to grease the wheels here to make it a, a fast trip to New York if you're going to do that. Uh, my right. goodness, that that's so sad. 
and they're going in the exact opposite direction. But Mike, I can remember prior to 1973, that's the way it was then. That's exactly right. That's right. exactly and, right. Yeah. And so, so this is the battle and this is the window of opportunity that we have. And this is the way our process of government is supposed to operate. Now, I know that frightens some people. Um, it certainly frightens some people on the left because they've abandoned themselves to wanting a dictatorship and they want a leftist dictatorship because they're terrified of, of, uh, of a different form of political thought and philosophy. Okay, that's one group. But there's people on the pro-life side that are equally terrified because they've been subjected to this party system, elitist, ruling class notion. And we've forgotten how our government's supposed to work. This is a wonderful rollback to reality that we'll have the opportunity to make the debate and win the public debate, not mm -hmm. by compulsion, not by force, not by violent protest or threatening anybody, but by simply having legislative debate, electing representatives who hold to a pro-life point of view and working that through the process so that we have the consent of the governed in a substantive majority. Now, there will be pro-abortion minorities everywhere but but guess what All right now the shoes on the other foot this is the way our system of government is supposed to work because it's built upon the consent of the governed that's what our declaration says and that consent of the governed is a biblical principle that we must never forsake even when it cuts against us we have to work harder to win the debate mm -hmm. and part of the reason mike that we've lost the debate on so many major issues in this country is simply because we stopped teaching what Francis Schaeffer would call true truth. We stopped teaching yeah. the urgency of the biblical revelation and the biblical worldview. And so we have people out there playing politics without a background. They're playing politics without a platform or a foundation. And they're getting blown back and forth between the waves. But in reality, when you look at America from a system of understanding the thought platforms upon which liberty is birthed, the pro-life position is the one that makes the most sense. It's the, it makes the most sense. It's the most, uh, I, I think, sound from a standpoint of even just if you only looked at it from the standpoint of the Constitution. It's the only one that makes sense. I mean, it, it, everything in the Constitution that we know, that we've ever studied, that we've ever read, it, it points away from the, the craziness of abortion where it's basically... Uh, you know, you're you're killing people, you're killing babies, and the, the what it's it's just like this complete state of of unreality where you'll have some laws that are passed in some states. I mean, it's just this way where a, a woman who was pregnant is killed, maybe even in a car wreck, and they've had rulings before that. It was a murder of not one or a death, not, uh, not one. May have, maybe it was a manslaughter, but it was a death of two. And the one was an unborn child in the womb. And, and th in those scenarios, uh, that's where it just makes no sense to me. It seems so hypocritical in so many ways, does it not? I mean, it's crazy. Well, there's another portion to this, Mike, also in regards to the value of a culture of life. Right now, in every state of the union, we have huge problems with hiring, with, with, with corporations desperately in need of people to come and work. Now, at first, everyone said, well, this is the outcome of COVID, and this was the uh, of, uh, overextension of unemployment benefits, and people have left the workforce. A little bit of that is still true. But what no one wants to admit out loud is we are short 60 million people in this country oh, on that's our population right. yeah. count because we've killed those people before they were oh, born. Wow. And one of the things you can drop religion from this altogether and just talk about socioeconomics, the basic fundamental driving engine of every economy is human beings. Human beings make stuff, they create stuff, they work stuff, they work the land. They are economic engines. They're also engines of consumption. So human beings are vital because they make stuff and they need stuff. And the more humans that you have, the more you have an economic opportunity to grow and expand. And when you, you, you we're in a situation right now where we don't have enough people to work to maintain 
our lifestyles, to maintain our vital services, we are in trouble. And that's what happens yes. when you create a culture that does not treasure life mm -hmm. and treasure family. Mm -hmm. This is what happens. Ooh, we've got uh, about a minute and a half left. I have, I have to ask you this. Been waiting to ask this. All right. Why is the Supreme Court, in light of the danger on the different justices, in, in light of the fact that a leak has already been given and we, we've heard it, about it, we know it wasn't supposed to go out like that, but it did. Why are they now waiting to possibly right before the 4th of July? What, what is the reason for that? Can't read the mind of Justice Roberts on this one. I don't know. Um, I know he, of all the chief justices I've had the privilege to, to, to observe, study, or be around, or be before, that um, Justice Roberts is one of the most politically sensitive, one of the most public relations sensitive people. Um, so I'm guessing that the strategy has to do with impact in the culture, but I can't exactly explain why I'm not at all surprised. Um, uh, now, the only thing I don't know is if there's some other shoe that will drop in regards to um, them doing something to address the leak as well. I don't know that. Have, has anything been done to the person that dropped that uh, bit of news out there? We don't know who that person is yet. And so they may be actually to the place of waiting to take every minute of time because they want to talk about that as well. I don't know. Yeah. But it's obviously uh, Chief Justice Roberts and who can read the mind of Roberts, not me. Okay, that's a fair answer, but I've been wanting to ask because if anybody could figure it out, I think it would be you. Dave Zanotti's with me today. We'll be back with one more segment with Dave. Don't go away. This is Afternoons with Mike. Back again for segment three with Dave Zanotti from the public square. This has been so enlightening for me to, to finally get to chat about all of this with you. I really enjoy, again, uh, kind of uh, running these thoughts by you. Uh, Dave, my respect for you is great. Uh, I really do believe that you and the team serve us all. And uh, I, I just encourage everybody to catch the public square here on The Shepherd. Uh, it has been of late and even a must, more so of a must-listen because of the things being talked about. One other thing about the Supreme Court before I, I, we turn our eyes to a different question, and that would be the fact that on Tuesday's ruling, the Supreme Court did issue a ruling for the main voucher case that was considered to be a big loss for, again, the, the Democrats and the Biden administration who would have pushed for this. It basically... Uh, removes uh, prejudice against Christian schools and uh, any other religious organization that would otherwise be denied the exemption of a voucher. What are your thoughts about that one? Well, I appreciate you talking about it, Mike. Um, as you re remember, we had a very um, strong role in the original su uh, Supreme Court ruling on school choice in the Zellman case that goes all the way back to 2002. That's almost 20 years ago. Um, in fact, it is 20 years ago. Um, that In that case, the court, we were very careful working with the Ohio law and in, in how the law was written and then how the law was actually defended through three courtrooms at the state level to the state Supreme Court, then three federal courts, courtrooms until we were before the United States Supreme Court. And in that particular case, uh, a logic was carefully crafted that enabled the court to rule in favor of school choice because of the fact that there is a profound balance in the way these programs are written to not give preference uh, in regards to a secular school versus a charter school versus a religious school. So the people that created the first case were very careful to be balanced. And, and I remember very well the argument sitting on the front row at the Supreme Court the day when we were in oral arguments and the huge victory, such a big deal that the president of the United States stopped what he was doing and came to Ohio on the day that the, the week of the ruling to announce the incredible uh, response and success. So what the court's done, and we're still looking at the main case ruling today, but from what we can tell in re early reports is the court is simply building on the Zellman case because the first case was done right, the first laws were done right, mm -hmm. and, and, and basically building on this now new precedent that is developing and now being reaffirmed 
that school choice is in fact a neutral technology that any group, public, private, can take advantage of. It's not intended to give one group advantage over the other, but it's intended truly and sincerely to empower parents to make the best choice for their children. And this is really good news on this affirmation of this case. Now, so we're very excited about that, having a very long history with school choice and with both the law and litigation. Now, here's the challenge. Another good, a good ruling on school choice. The problem is we don't have enough alternative schools in America for parents to use the pent up reality of how many vouchers could be used if people would actually start building Christian schools and private schools that would give parents someplace to send their kids. Mm -hmm. We've got all the legal groundwork done at the federal level. It, it, states should be moving their funding platforms to empower school choice and people out here should be building schools. Now, I can tell you right now in a number of places where we're working, we're seeing those schools being built and being filled up, going from zero to a thousand students in just a number of years. If this stuff really truly works, what we need is for people to understand, instead of bellyaching about the public school system, why not start an alternative system built upon a different platform of, of principles and a different educational model because the law is on your side. Yeah. You know, that old saying, it's, it needs to die before it gets better. I think that there's some truth to that when it comes to the whole makeup of public schools, that it's just not working. And we need to realize, and I think it, there is a move afoot. You know, one thing that if there was a silver lining with COVID, uh, a lot of people went to homeschooling, whether they wanted to or not, at, at least schooling at home, if not homeschooling. But the, they were forced to, to take their kids out of the classroom and bring them in. And a lot of people, a lot of people have found that that's not a bad way to go. So, yeah, there's there's a, a real good chance that with all of this coming through that people could pick up and start developing these, especially in light of the fact that these uh, schools are very good schools that are that are popping up that do go from zero to a hundred or a thousand, as you said. Uh, my goodness, uh, we can pray for more of that, right? Well, and I'm hoping that today, as someone's listening or as they listen to the rebroadcast of this content, that they'll hear this and join us in prayer that God would send more laborers into His harvest field. You know, Mike, in the old days. Um, you didn't have a church. You didn't have a town without a church. You didn't have a church without a school. And this is how the communities of America were built yeah. with a concept of a commitment to character. Now, when we talk about that, I'm not suggesting that the character of America has ever been perfect without flaw. We've had issues. We all know that we've had issues, whether we're talking about slavery or economic justice, or we can talk about a dozen things that America's always having to work at to this very hour because we are fallen, sinful humans who are prone to do the wrong thing, and we got to help each other. So this is this goes with the territory, but the institution of having the family, the church, and the school are inescapable and, and desperately important, and it shouldn't be an adversarial position. There's going to be plenty of people that still want to use public schools. That's fantastic. There's no problem with that. And there's no reason why public schools can't change their curriculum platform and, and uh, from the local level up and be more responsive to parents. But we have every avenue open to us, bellyaching about public education in an environment that is so legally pro-school choice is a lot of wasted space. Let's build alternative remedies and then watch and see how quickly the public systems decide to change. Mm -hmm. Now on that, we all saw the Loudoun, Virginia, uh, the parents who got involved and took the school boards to task there. Are you seeing that happen elsewhere around the country? Well, it's funny because one of uh, the very first um, opportunities we had in the state where the American Policy Roundtable got started, it was, was back in 1984 in a textbook argument with a major school system in the state of Ohio, which then turned into that school board being upended 
and a whole different majority, conservative majority, taking over that school board for a number of years. Like I've seen this, this I don't know how many times since 84, I've seen the same thing happen over and over again. And it should happen mm-hmm. over and over again. Local boards should be responsive to parents who are the people whose kids are there, who have custodial care for those children, primary legal custodial care, and for the fact that they're the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. All right? And so people say public schools. Well, wait a minute. We're all the public. We pay for them. So to have an opinion and to express that opinion and to work toward justice in regards to the education of children should be something that we all consider part of Christian service. So whether we're doing that with public education, whether we're doing it with with vouchers, with private schools, with charter schools, with with, with, homeschooling, whatever vehicle best helps kids, we should be busy about. I agree. I do agree. Dave, we've got just a little bit of time left. I'm going to pose a question to you. If everything that's going on in the country right now would be, in this metaphor, would be uh, a land, a big field, acreage, what areas in our public right now uh, should should uh, we be able to put up signs to the, gover- to the government and say no trespassing? Where do you see trespassing happen on rights, in public policy, what are you guys looking at and what what can we uh, start praying about and, and stepping up against? That's a great question, Mike. Let, let's talk about, I mean, and, and uh, there's 20 different answers. And I'm not suggesting uh, on the fly that I'm going to give you the number one absolute priority. But let's talk about, I would say, a number one need. The reason that we're in the radical inflationary pro, uh, situation that we're in right now with our economy is because the Biden administration has made a disastrous decision to punish the American people until we submit to global climate change Mm -hmm. policies and eliminate the use of fossil fuels. That is bizarre behavior, and the government should not be executing those kinds of decisions outside of the consent of the governed. Joe Biden does not have an act of Congress that's empowered him to do this, We haven't had votes in the states that empower us to do this. This is dictatorial. And by having a dictatorial program on energy policy instead of a well-thought-out, diverse program on energy policy, Joe Biden is literally causing people to change the way they're able to move, where they're able to work, and how they feed themselves and their children. This is an energy-driven inflationary upward spiral that is caused by an administrative state that is dictating to people, not the consent of the governed. The governmental dictates and executive orders, whether they're being done by presidents who we like or presidents who we don't like, should be stopped. We do not have government by the executive branch. We have government by the people and their elected representatives in Congress. And so I would say the first thing that we have grown used to that is literally putting a noose around our necks are executive orders by the administrative state. The administrative state poses the gravest danger to all of our liberties and our health. And we have to get back to a Congress that does the lawmaking and the funding and appropriates the dollars for proper enforcement not an administrative state and a political elite that dictates reality to us every day. Mm-hmm. So if this left uh, government that we have right now is going to be uprooted in November and we would have conservatives moving back in, people who are, um, you know, original uh, constitutionalists in, in the uh, Congress, uh, have we waited too late? Is too much water already under the bridge? Can this oh, thing Great be- question. Great question, Mike. No, not only have we now waited too late, but we're, we're, we're already prepared to quit too early. We need, in the next five years, we have an election coming in November, then two years after that, and two years after that. So in mm-hmm. the next four and a half years, we have one, two, three elections in regards to every member of Congress being up in the House, and all of the Senate over the next five years will be up for re-election. One-third, one-third, one-third over that six-year time frame, that five-year time frame. What we must do is to create a constitutional majority in the House and Senate, not a Republican majority. There is a profound difference. I don't care whether a person is Republican, Democrat, independent, or a Martian. It doesn't matter. 
What matters is will they uphold the Constitution of the United States as they have sworn on their oath, and will they interpret the Constitution in the way that it was written and has historically been upheld? Will they do the constitutional stuff, regardless of political party, principle mm-hmm. over party? We need over, we, and we have the opportunity over the next five years to continue to elect such a wave of constitutionalists that five years from now, the problem I just described of executive orders doesn't exist because the president knows Congress is doing their job and he better not get in the way. Wouldn't you because think, he doesn't have the authority to do so. Wouldn't you think an example of what you're talking about right there by not being Republican? Uh, we have a Democrat in, in Senator Manchin that if it weren't for Manchin right now, there'd be a lot more of the left lefty type of uh, policies that would uh, already be hung around us. Isn't that right? Mike, in the 60s in the United States of America, you had a conservative ruling majority in the Congress made up of Republicans and Democrats. It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a Congress that made decisions based on the issues and what was best for the country. It was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the civil rights movement was a fully bipartisan movement. Mm -hmm. It happened through Congress, not through executive order. And the civil rights leadership won that debate brilliantly and would had great sacrifice. It's one of the highlights of the American form of government. And it was Congress that they persuaded, not simply the White House. And so this is what we've got to get back to where we're talking about issues like national debt, issues like national defense, issue like energy policy. We all drive the same roads. We all face the same foes. Why are we divided up in partisan clans when in reality, we're the same people. We drive the same roads. We need each other. We do. And Dave, I'm out of time, but I can't thank you enough for once again, challenging us, and Lord, let these things come to pass, we pray. We pray for health for you guys and your team at the roundtable. Thank you for what you do day in and day out. And Dave, thank you personally for being with me here today, spending yet another fun show together. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Mike. I treasure your friendship and all your work. Thank you. All right. God bless you. And friends, we'll see you next time right here on Afternoons with Mike.